Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Peer, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. Welcome to BCD's People Are Culture podcast. Today, we're talking with Cliff Murphy, Director of Folk and Traditional Arts at the National Endowment for the Arts. Cliff oversees the NEA's grant-making in Folk and Traditional Arts and manages the NEA National Heritage Fellowships. Cliff was previously Director of Maryland Traditions, the folk life program of the Maryland State Arts Council. I know you'll enjoy Cliff's overview of how the NEA supports folk and traditional arts in diverse communities through education initiatives, programs to fuel creativity and the transmission of culture, and fostering connection and appreciation for the rich diversity of U.S. culture. Cliff, welcome to the People Are Culture podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. The podcast is based on the notion that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. How do you define culture? It's a good question. I, I'm going to paraphrase a different Clifford, um, Clifford Geertz, who is an anthropologist, you know, who described culture being like uh, webs, right? Webs of significance that human beings spin to to give meaning, right, uh, to life. That's an image that. Um, has a lot of traction in the ethnographic world. Um, to me, I, you know, I, I kind of feel like um, that only holds up um, to a certain degree, you know, uh, that if you look at a spider web, it's, it's really tidy. And there's one spider that's making the web. And I feel like, especially working at an agency like the National Endowment for the Arts, we have this very broad uh, view of what's happening across the country. And so you can see that there are, <laughs> there are a lot of webs and a lot of spiders. Um, but, but, really, but really what it is, it's, you know, I mean, these are the activities that give our lives collective meaning, right? And they're collectively made. Uh, culture uh, emerges from deliberate action uh, and it emerges from chaos. Um, so I'm more inclined to think of culture being kind of like, and it's okay if you laugh, uh, of being like a beaver dam, you know, where <laughs> you have the beavers that, that deliberately make this structure, you know, they, they draw from materials in their area. Uh, it's something that they need and they maintain it for a long time. It dams the river. It creates this big uh, pond and a whole ecosystem around it. And then at a certain point, uh, they abandon the dam and they go and build a new one. And that causes the dam to break and it causes the pond to go away. And there's this whole other um, ecosystem that needs to adjust and change. So everybody's making new stuff from old stuff. Um, that's a long answer, but um, that's kind of how I see it. That is a fabulous answer. I love it on so many levels, um, particularly what resonated with me is the reference to the spider web being neat. And it certainly is my view that culture is rather messy. It's very um, diffused and 
blurry sometimes. Uh, so that analogy uh, really hits home with me. And it's a great definition. Yeah, now, the, and, the, and the web is is um, is good and all if you're the spider, but not if you're anybody else. Right. <laughs> right. So <laughs> and, anyhow. And then also your point, I think so many people think of culture as a luxury or uh, something that is not a necessity when in fact you make the very valid point that it's essential to how we interrelate with each other. So I love that, Cliff. Now, to go on, uh, why does culture matter? I mean, you've kind of addressed this in your your answer, but can you expand on that? Yeah, I, I mean, this will probably be a recurring theme, but um, uh, culture is what, what gives us a sense of connection um, to other people, um, to our past, to our present, to our future. It's, it's the things that, that, that make us a, a neighborhood. Um, whether that's an actual neighborhood or whether it's a, a kind of um, less geographically based one. So while culture does provide the sense of connection, I think paradoxically it, it, it also gives us a sense of what makes us distinct uh, in our own right. Um, and that's, uh, that's a fascinating tension um, to me. Agreed. Well, everything has its yin and its yang, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it does. Um, now, the National Endowment for the Arts is an independent federal government agency that supports artistic excellence, creativity, and innovation for the benefit of individuals and communities. Your area of focus, uh, folk and traditional arts, is one of 22 disciplines that the NEA supports. Can you step back and give us the bird's eye view on the NEA's overall mission, its criteria? and how folk and traditional arts fits within the general context of advancing the nonprofit arts in the U.S.? Sure. There's a lot in that question. Um, <laughs> so, and to do that. <laughs> so I, I'm going to, um, I'm, I'm going to do a quick history lesson here. Um, and I'm going to quote LBJ when president Johnson signed the, um, the arts endowments, uh, founding legislation into law in 1965, um, he said, and I'll, and I'll quote, art is the nation's most precious heritage, for it is in our works of art that we reveal to ourselves and to others the inner vision which guides us as a nation. And where there is no vision, the people perish, end quote. And I, I would say that, you know, that's a very broad definition of of why the work that we do matters. I, I think that that's a stunningly eloquent quote from one of our less eloquent presidents. Um, and the legislation itself, when you actually look at the law, um, it defines art in a variety of ways. And uh, it says that art is what allows us to transmit the achievements and values of civilization from the past via the present to the future. Again, that's a statement that's all-encompassing of the arts. The National Endowment for the Arts um, defines folk and traditional arts in its legislation as well. Um, so folk art is actually a term that appears in the law, um, as well as all those traditional arts practiced by the diverse peoples of this country. Uh, so the terminology is drawn directly from the legislation um, in terms of how uh, we organize and how we try to address um, the law of the land through the resources that we provide. Um, and in our agency, I'll, I'll give you the, the, you know, 
what we say in our guidelines and, and on our website, uh, which is that the folk and traditional arts are rooted in and reflective of the cultural life of a community. Community members may share common ethnic heritage, cultural mores, language, religion, occupation, or geographic region. These vital and, con and constantly reinvigorated artistic traditions are shaped by values and standards of excellence that are passed from generation to generation, most often within family and community, through demonstration, conversation, and practice. So, you know, as an agency, we have supported folk and traditional arts uh, since our inception in 1965. Uh, the first round of grants from our agency included a grant to the National Council for the Traditional Arts uh, for the National Folk Festival. Um, if you were to look at the projects that we support through folk and traditional arts, you'd see programs as different as festivals, uh, symposia, podcasts, uh, apprenticeships, ethnographic fieldwork. Um, you'd also find uh, really an incredible range of different cultural forms uh, and, and places, right? So Kentucky bluegrass, uh, Pueblo pottery from New Mexico, Kuchipudi dance in California, African-American story quilting in Ohio. Um, so these, you know, these art forms are, are performing arts. They are material arts. They're verbal arts. Um, uh, they, they really run the gamut. And I'm struck by the fact that these all relate to the idea of transmission of culture over generations and that it does change and it does evolve. And can you tell me about um, how the NEA has addressed that and what some of the catalysts have, of, of changes have been? Sure. Um, I, I guess if there's one through line, is that there's always been a very high priority on uh, living traditions. Um, and so, you know, what gets enfolded in that category of living traditions uh, changes over time. The scope of that um, changes with the arrival of new traditions into the country. Uh, it changes with the emergence of new traditions. Um, as, a, as a point of reference, you know, I mean, I, I think, okay, 1965, when, when this agency was created, um, you know, some big sweeping national uh, traditions like uh, gospel music were only about 40 years old. Bluegrass music, I think, was only 20 years old at that point. Um, so thinking about it in those terms, you know, you, you realize how, how much times have changed, right? Um, how some traditions that were still emergent um, in 1965 have become profoundly uh uh, representative and iconic of life uh, across the country. And, you know, at, at the same time, there are things that have emerged um, since then. You know, the, the competitive powwow dance and drum circuit um, is, is uh, massive uh, relative to what it was in 1965. Um, you know, there are entire traditions that have, um, that have uh, arrived here um, and, and blossomed uh in in exciting ways you know i mentioned south indian dance earlier a, as an example south indian dancers and artists and communities were only arriving in significant numbers beginning around the time that the that the arts endowment was founded and so um you know we have maintained a flexible definition of this to um 
to to be responsive to to change uh, across the country. Those are great examples, and it's it's an education for me because I would not have thought of bluegrass or gospel music as being a relatively uh, new genre, the way that you you date those. And I do certainly think of them as being very iconically American, even while they may have roots in other cultures. And I'm inspired to ask, does the NEA do any work in the area of the blues, which I, I know is considered to be, you know, quintessentially American? Yeah, I, you know, the 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 arts endowment has um, supported projects, programs, and individuals uh, in blues music, um, probably going back to its inception. Um, you know, the inception of the agency that is not a, not of the blues. Um, and you know, if you look at the National Heritage Fellowships Program, which is uh, one of our flagship programs, you'll find. Uh, many blues musicians in there, uh, men and women, uh, country blues and electric blues. So yes, um, we've also supported a lot of different um, uh, community-based programs where uh, people are are you know where you have master uh, blues musicians teaching um, people how to write blues uh, songs, uh, how to play guitar um, and other instruments. So yeah, it's gotten robust support. One of the NEA's goals is fueling creativity. Can you give me some examples of how this goal has been achieved on both an individual and a community level? Sure. Um, since we just mentioned blues, I'll, I'll mention, uh, you know, we have um, supported a project at the um, the Delta Blues Museum uh, in uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, um, which is, a, is an interesting example of how... Um, Kids are learning how to play blues um, from master blues musicians, um, but in the process, they're also learning how to write songs. They're learning how to play musical instruments that that are are, are portable. That uh, somebody who learns to play the guitar um, doesn't need to spend the rest of their life as a, as a blues musician. Um, they can uh, take this and adapt this to. Um, whatever form of cultural expression makes the most sense to them uh, as an individual. Um, but they're also learning basic sound engineering and production skills, right? So, so um, the museum is, is uh, providing them with training that can actually be useful um, as a career, as a sound engineer um, and, and music production, right? So that's... Um, that's kind of one way of fueling creativity, right? Um, is is using traditional arts as an entry point um, that can lead in a lot of different directions, but is rooted in tradition. We support um, through uh, through the Folklife program in the state of North Dakota. There's an Art for Life program, which is worth taking a look at in terms of how traditional arts reawaken creativity and um, and connection in uh, nursing homes. Um, uh, you know, for, for mm. people who, who have in some ways been become disconnected from uh, kind of the hustle and bustle of everyday life. If you think about, I don't know, the 1960s and 70s as the heyday of, um, of the festival, right? Uh, of, of, of a festival being the, the great medium to share music, whether it's traditional music or something else, um, there are 
different mediums and different generations that um, that emerge as as interesting vehicles for sharing stories, right? So Vermont Folklife Center is uh, has been training people uh, to do cartooning that uh, can be used as a way of sharing out stories from uh, from communities that might be hard to access um, uh, or who, who might be uh, vulnerable in different ways, um, but also as a way of kind of sharing out in, in different newspapers um, and online the activities that the program itself is up to when it's doing field work across the state. Not necessarily sticking to traditional documentary tools, but kind of taking things into a new medium that's going to reach an audience that wouldn't be reached otherwise. In Texas, uh, you know, there's a, a, a great program called The Big Squeeze, um, which is a competitive um, accordion program that really hits upon three different broad strains of uh, accordion-based uh, cultural traditions in Texas. You have uh, a sizable Eastern European polka uh, accordion tradition. You have uh, Tejano Junto uh, accordion-based traditions. Um, and then you have Cajun Zydeco uh, traditions, which are part of that uh, New Orleans and Louisiana diaspora, um, Acadian diaspora. Um, and that is a, a competitive program for young people. Um, it gives them a, a chance to um, to really showcase themselves. Um, it, it gives them a chance to to really hone their chops, um, if that makes sense. Uh, which is um, an important step in terms of people who who uh, want to do this more often in their lives, right? Um, so so it helps to to kind of helps kids to transition to a, a more prominent place in their own music communities. Wow, what a fa fantastic answer. You touched on so many things that I'd love to go off and tell the <laughs> tangents more, about. I, I'm so. only going to ask you to follow up on just two things that you mentioned. And one of them is near and dear to my own heart. And it's the disconnection that the elderly can feel from culture and from society. And, you know, I know from members of my own family that when people are bedridden or, you know, otherwise unable to be out and about, that it can be very isolating. And I'm very interested in the NEA's efforts to reach that constituency because these are our elders. And this is really, you know, just such an important element of our society. Can you expand a little bit further on um, your efforts to reach that community? Well, um, I think there's there are a couple of different um, points of entry there, right? One is um, through programs that are, are deliberately trying to reach um, people who uh, are in facilities for the aging, um, uh, for people who are in hospitals, for uh, people who are you know, so-called shut-ins. The New Jersey Folklife Program has started an initiative to um, to bring artists into uh, the homes of, of people who can't get out, um, of the elderly, um, to really um, use that as a way of improving quality of life uh, for the residents of the state. Um, so 
you know, people are, in terms of how the National Endowment for the Arts is built, we're really providing resources for, um, for people to propose projects of a, of a wide variety of types, right? So we're not, we're not um, terribly prescriptive when it comes to saying, uh, you know, bring us your projects on these specific areas. We do a little bit of that. Um, right. Uh, but, you know, uh, so you may have one program that's going house to house in New Jersey. You may have another program in North Dakota that's actually going to um, places where you have a large number of uh, seniors living um, in one space, right? So it, it takes different shapes depending on the geography and challenges of any specific area. As far as programs, uh, you know, that that value um, our elders. Elders are, are, are um, such a significant part of tradition. They're the people who have great wisdom. I think that different cultural communities know this in their own way. Um, I think that our resources and the programs that we support uh, sometimes uh, can help to, to remind people of uh, of the wisdom that elders have to share. We can talk about this in a little bit, but um, with our National Heritage Fellows, right? Um, you will see a lot of uh, people who mm. uh, are community elders who have been recognized with that award. One of our recipients this year, I just heard a, a radio piece um, uh, on him, Grant Boltail. He's a, a Crow uh, storyteller from Montana, um, was talking to his local public uh, radio station, uh, you know, about how receiving a National Heritage Fellowship has kind of made a bunch of people uh, in his community realize that he has something of value to say. That's very powerful. I saw your tweet about that. I just think that is so meaningful that people can work their whole lives in a certain realm and, you know, perhaps not get the recognition on a, on a grand scale that um, they see others. And, and then when they, if, and when they do get that recognition, it's so affirming and not only for them, but it's kind of a wake up call for their own community. I, I agree. Sometimes. And um, I, th I think that, I don't know, being involved in this work that I'm always continuously amazed to see how, um, how uh, recognition can function on a number of fronts. You know, sometimes for an artist, they may see it as cash in their pocket. They may be glad to have recognition. They may feel like it's about time, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think more often than not, um, they have uh, uh, it, it reinforces their commitment um, to, uh, to this tradition that having some kind of outside uh, recognition um, is an indicator that, um, in some sense, that they've been right all along, that um, what they've dedicated their lives to is um, something that's deeply meaningful. Yes. Well, I think for many people who pursue a calling, and, and that's what I would call it, um, as such, there's not a whole lot of choice about it. It's something that they're driven to do. And, you know, there are artisans or other cultural standard bearers who can go their whole life, you know, really dedicated to preserving art or creating art and culture. And, um, you know, any kind of recognition is sometimes just 
icing on the cake, but it can matter so much. And I, I think that's great. Now, the other thing that you touched on that I thought was very interesting is when you were referring to the three different styles of the accordion. And I'm curious about, you know, at that, um, that uh, event, whether there, there's any cross-pollination that goes on. Um, because I don't know, I mean, to me, in my own lifetime, as a kid, I used to equate the accordion mm-hmm. with like fogey music. And it's become, at least to my awareness, much more hip. And it's, a, it's an instrument that's involved in a lot of different genres. You know, like I've heard it in Estonia, and I've heard it in South America. And uh, I'm just wondering when, when there's artisans or artists that are brought together from different cultures who specialize in a certain realm, whether you see any cross-pollination uh, I, going on. I do. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, if you look at um, Conanzo music, uh, you know, that that um, Texas-Mexican border tradition is uh, in many ways uh, one of the great examples of what happens when there is cross-pollination, um, you know, what you, you can hear it, this combination of ranchero music and of uh, Eastern European polka influence, um, you know, that's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's right there. There's a band from Pennsylvania called the Polka Family um, uh, who they're, I'm going to give you a, 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 probably too short of a version of this they're kind of the brady bunch of of polka music in that it's a a, a mexican rooted uh polka group uh marrying a, a polish uh rooted polka group and they merge you know it's kind of a blended family of tradition um those two styles are very you know that eastern european polka um, an accordion style is very compatible with um, with uh, Tejano music, um, you know, and and I guess that's that's something too is that how we talk about tradition and how we talk about culture um, in this country, our feelings about what's waxing and waning um, can be rooted in what we know best, right? And um, and the accordion mm-hmm. is a great example of that. So um, there's one way of talking about accordion music in America that um, is rooted in that Lawrence Welk, Lady Lady of Spain, piano accordion kind of thing, right? Which like every kid right. in the 1950s played accordion or like a Gene Autry guitar, right? Like one or the other. I, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but yep. you know. Um, yeah. And you will hear people rightly, I think. Um, lament the fact that piano accordion is this thing that is vanishing. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's vanishing, but it's certainly diminished since 1950. And at the same time, hmm. right, you'll see it pop up in pop music every once in a while. Um, but at the same time, you know, the idea that accordion music is dying in the United States is, is, just wrong. Um, and if you look at Zydeco music, mm. if you look at uh, Cajun music, if you look at Irish traditional music, um, uh, and, and and definitely in Tejano music, the accordion is um, is alive and well. And I would say that actually in Latin American music, um, the accordion is cool. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, right. the, the, you know, if you look at a if you look at a music video and there's accordion in the song, the accordion player has the space that, you know, some guitar shredder or you know, like a hip hop MC right. would have. They're they're the they're the cool person in the group. Yeah. Well, this actually is a springboard to my next question, which is that the NEA serves a cross-section of communities that encompass rural, inner city, immigrants, and occupational groups. Can you speak to how the NEA keeps a finger on the pulse of these communities to discern their different needs and to assess and prioritize the potential impact of so, funding? So um, we're we're, I mean, your your question um, is is very generous, and that it implies that um, that we are like fanned out across the country, like paying attention to these things um, with a massive staff. And unfortunately, there's we're we're we're, we're a very lean staff here, um, but we're lucky in that um, there is a very large national network. Of, uh, of folk life programs, both at the state level and at the at the local and regional level, almost every state in the country and in the U.S. territories has a folk life program, mostly situated at their state arts agency. Um, some are at uh, state humanities councils, and there are a handful that are um, standalone nonprofits. Um, but nearly every state has one, and. Um, these are programs that the that the arts endowment um, helped to seed and nurture um, in the 1970s, and that have really flourished in their own right over the last 40 plus years. And so these are the people and programs that are working, I think, very hard to document living traditions across the country, to connect traditional artists to different programs and resources that are going to be useful to those communities and in, in, in their own pursuit of, of cultural sustainability, of awareness, of prestige, whatever it might be. Um, and so that is a network that we look to for, um, uh, for, you know, to understand what's happening across the country um, uh, nationally at a state level, at a regional level, um, and at a grassroots level. Um, we, we could not uh, have the awareness that we have without that network. Um, and by extension, there are many nonprofits across the country who have a focus on, on cultural heritage, right? Um, so they may be very much focused on a specific tradition in a specific location, um, San Jose Tyco, for instance, but they also may have a regional focus like the Western Folklife Center in Elko, Nevada. Um, these are um, programs that that focus in different ways on on tradition and trying to be of service to, to the communities that they're embedded in or or um, who who their mission is tied to, um, and so that you know we we work with that network of organizations and individuals as well. The pool of, of culture that NEA supports is really, to some extent, um, self-selected culture bearers that make the NEA aware of their existence and their desire for support. Um, to some extent. And then I would say that our responsibility, um, both on a daily basis and over time, um, is to 
also try to see who we're not reaching and then to develop strategies mm. and um, relationships that uh, make us of better service to, you know, so make us uh, a, a network of, of programs that are supported that, that all Americans can see their heritage reflected in, right? Um, uh, that's how we know um, if we're doing our jobs well, is if people see themselves reflected in these programs um, over time, right? Uh, and so, you know, one of our jobs or one of my jobs is to say, okay, if, if, um, if I look at who has applied for support from us over time, if I look at, um, you know, who these state programs are reaching or regional programs are reaching, if I look at the National Heritage Fellowships over time, and, and, and we see that there are cultural communities, geographic communities, um, uh, emergent traditions, uh, endangered traditions that have not been reached. How do we develop a um, an effective game plan to <clears throat> to reach those communities, to get to know them, and to uh, to be a service? That's great. And, That's an important clarification, and, and, and I appreciate what I, that. What I add to that is, um, and and this is uh, this is somewhat <clears throat> personal, I guess, is that um, it, it's just. In, in my experience, both here at the Arts Endowment and um, in working um, for a state folk life program in the past, is that if we are, um, if we're on our heels, if we are, um, if, if we're somewhat uncomfortable because we are um, getting to know new people that we don't know already, um, if we're saying to somebody, uh, <laughs> tell me more. I, you know, like I have, I have a lot to learn here. Um, uh, that's an indication that we're where we should be, you know, that we are, um, that we are pushing ourselves to be, um, as inclusive as, um, as a, a national program should be. Well, you know, it's my personal belief that anyone that expects themselves to know it all um, is in a kind of dangerous position. And being able to be open-minded and ask questions and um, have the humility to say, like, I can't possibly, you know, be on top of everything that there is to know and um, have a desire to to learn more is a fantastic um, attitude for life. And in that spirit, um, by many different different definitions, culture is a transmission line and apprenticeships are an element of the NEA's programs. Can you talk about the value of passing on a craft or a skill one person at a time and share examples of a few of the apprenticeships the NEA has supported? Sure. Uh, the Arts Endowment started a program specifically to support traditional arts apprenticeships in 1978. Um, and we managed that program uh, for a handful of years before we basically spun it off to to our constituents to say, hey, here's a project type that if, if you want to propose apprenticeships um, and support apprenticeships, we're, we're supportive of that, right? So, um, so, so we don't actually have a, a breakout for apprenticeships. We just support a lot of programs that have apprenticeships, if that makes sense. But gotcha. I do think that it's one of the great um, uh, successes of these programs. Apprenticeship grants, um, I would say they're, 
there are three really general categories of apprenticeships. Um, there are the statewide programs, right? The state folk life programs um, that typically support one-to-one apprenticeships, like face-to-face, one person with one person. Um, and usually those programs are broadly reflective of the residents of that state. In the state of Oregon, I, I tried to find one that... that um, kind of hit a, bu- a bunch of different types of points, right? So in 2015, 2016, the Oregon Folklife Network had six apprenticeships, right? One was in saddle making. Uh, you know, one was Ooh. with the Burns Paiute tribal elders focused on moccasin making. Um, another was um, uh, focused on uh, hip hop and uh, MC, you know, freestyle rap. Um, one was focused on silversmithing and how that ties into, um, to the, uh, you know, horse culture, um, in Oregon. Another one was, a, a, a storytelling apprenticeship, um, with, uh, with a couple of different, um, uh, native tribes in Oregon. And then another was a South Indian dance, uh, Bharat Natyam, uh, dance apprenticeship, right? So, so you can see there, you have a mixture of, of uh, indigenous, uh, longstanding, and newly arrived traditions, as well as emergent traditions. And it, it reflects different, um, different points of access to heritage and, um, and to culture. Some might meet uh, you uh, where you would expect to find uh, folk life and cultural heritage, which might be something like moccasin making um, or saddle making, right? Um, but some might uh, kind of confound your expectations um, and push you to have a different viewpoint on what is a living tradition, um, uh, which would be the the hip hop apprenticeship, um, you know, and another might uh, be a point of saying, okay, uh Natyam dance is in in South India is considered a classical form uh here in the United States it lands in uh traditional arts right um and uh and it's Ooh. from a community that is you know uh relative to to the National Endowment for the Arts newly arrived um though um you know 50 years is a long time um, so not, not as newly as arrived as, as, uh, as we might think. Right. So, so, um, a state program is going to have a broad approach like that and is going to, um, cause people to reflect on kind of what are the traditions of this state? Um, what is the state of tradition? Um, uh, right. You also have culturally specific programs that have apprenticeships, um, like the Mariachi Master Apprentice Program uh, that the city of San Fernando has as an after-school program. Um, so that's kind of a large ensemble-based um, apprenticeship program where kids are learning after school how to play mariachi music, um, and they're doing this together in a group setting. Um you have the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance in Northern Maine, uh, which has really reinvigorated a, a tradition that was pretty rapidly diminishing. Um, you know, it's the traditions of the Passamaquoddy, uh, Penobscot, Maliseet, uh, and Micmac uh, tribes. Um, and uh, that has not only strengthened that tradition, but has also um, really, I think, help to 
to teach younger basket makers how to market their work, um, uh, how to market it, mm. sell it, price it, um, and has brought it to really pretty significant prominence um, on a national level. Um, and, you know, then there's the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation has a mentorship program, um, which is uh, not constricted simply to traditional arts, which is um, uh, for uh, indigenous artists of a wide variety of backgrounds. And again, this is um, focused, it's kind of a combination fellowship and giving people very real training on uh, almost a master class with a with a mentor artist, um, and that that includes um, kind of that entrepreneurial training as well. So, um, you know, it's an interesting mix. Uh, I think that you know, getting back to our idea of elders, um, this is a, a a kind of project type or program or or concept of transmission that, um, that really, uh, celebrates, uh, elders, community elders, um, and acknowledges the wisdom that they have and the, and the talent that they have. Um, and, and, and just lastly, you know, you, you're also going to find in apprenticeships, um, that whoever, whoever is running an apprenticeship program, um, is, is going to be, typically supporting a mixture of a, a tradition, a, a set of traditions that are, are in a wide range of strength. Um, what I mean by that is you may have um, <clears throat> a, a quilt making apprenticeship or an Irish dance apprenticeship, which relative to other forms of folk life are pretty robust um, and thriving. Um, but you might also have an endangered tradition where somebody is the last person um, in that cultural community who knows how to speak an indigenous language or how to make uh, an eel basket or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and so, uh, you know, these programs are also trying to address that and to, um, to strengthen tradition in the, in the state that it's in. Cliff, I'm so struck listening to your answer by just how rich the culture we have here in the U.S. is and, and just how much it encompasses because all the different examples that you gave, you know, really spoke to just the diversity of our culture. And that makes me feel good. Um, and the other thing that you touched on, which could be a whole separate conversation, but it's, it's an important consideration, the business end of ensuring that a cultural tradition continues often requires some type of understanding of the the dynamics of that, whether it be marketing um, or entrepreneurship. And I think people tend to think of culture as just self-sustaining when in fact, for a lot of artisans or cultural standard bearers, there is an element of needing to have some business training. Does the NEA have a point of view on that or have programs or support programs? Yeah. That our, that? Um, I think historically our, our point of view on that, um, on entrepreneurship and, and traditional arts is meeting people where they live. What I mean by that is we have supported um, projects and programs that, um, that train people how to market their work, um, how to run their, business of art making. That's not a universal thing because um, there are also 
plenty of forms of practice that aren't rooted necessarily in that entrepreneurial model, right? So we need to be um, broad in terms of the kinds of support that we provide. I would say that uh, in the field of folklore studies, um, you know, this is a, a topic or a concept that can spark some arguments among, um, you know, people who have academic training and uh, or, or even at the community level, you know, people who have a very strong feeling that nobody should be making money, uh, the money making shouldn't be the focus of whatever the tradition might be. We don't take um, a stance on that issue other than to say that um, we are here as a public resource for communities to frame projects and programs that um, that serve to sustain, uh, showcase um, share, uh, living traditions. Um, and that support isn't, um, isn't anchored in entrepreneurship or not entrepreneurship. Right. Um, so we're happy to support it and we're also happy to support, um, uh, traditional culture that, uh, isn't necessarily chasing a dollar. I think of, uh, of our national heritage fellows this year, right. Um, Josephine Lobato is a, a, a culture embroiderer um, uh, from Colorado who, uh, received a, you know, part of the national heritage fellowship is a $25,000 award. Right. Um, but as an artist, um, Josephine, uh, makes her art for herself and she makes it for her family and for her community. Um, and so she's not somebody who is, um, actively selling her work. Um, and that fits her worldview, that um, fits, I'm sure, part of a, a cultural uh, perspective that, that, um, that some practitioners of that tradition have felt strongly about. I, I think that an award like that, um, the National Heritage Fellowship, um, is an acknowledgement and, and is a way of, uh, of, of providing recognition that is monetary, but is also, um, you know, very real. Uh, for somebody who who hasn't spent their life trying to make a bunch of money uh, from their art form, uh, uh, you know, if you look in the apprenticeships program, um, there are a lot of traditions that are in there that, even if somebody wanted to make a ton of money doing this, um, it doesn't have the market that um, that that you know not not all um, not all traditional art forms have a, a, a national or international. Um, market for them. Uh, and so sometimes apprenticeships can be used as a form of payment uh, from an arts agency that helps somebody like that uh, carve out some time in their busy life to pass on a tradition, right? So it's not about the entrepreneurship. It's about time. And it's about, you know, an award like that can help an artist literally buy some time to teach somebody. Does that make sense? Right. I don't know that yes. that was well, very clear, but you, thank you for, no, it was very clear. And actually it's, it's a very valid clarification that like any other dimension of culture, there's a spectrum, you know, there are the people that rely on their tradition and their art to earn a livelihood. Um, and I don't think that, 
in my view, that debases it in any way. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, there are traditions that are sacred and not for widespread public consumption, you know, not certainly not for sale. So your answer really uh clarify yeah. that there is that spectrum. If you look at the um, National Heritage Fellowships Program, you will see people like Bill Monroe uh, or B.B. King or Mavis Staples uh, or Michael Flatley, who um, have been incredible entrepreneurs who have, um, you know, developed an international uh, reputation uh, who are were very much in business um, and who it would be hard to take a position saying that that is what they do is not traditional arts. And B.B. King spent many, many, many years toiling without any recognition, you know, until he he achieved that quote unquote commercial success later in life. Um, but in any event, you also touched on something I want to spend some time talking about, which is the National Heritage Fellows Program, which is one of the nation's highest honors in the folk and traditional arts. Can you give an overview of what the NEA is looking for in applicants and share some background on a few of the 2019 sure. um, recipients? You've given me a great opening here. So <laughs> one thing to know about the National Heritage Fellowships is actually that um, uh, people don't apply for a National Heritage Fellowship. Um, so it's, it's not a grant, it's ah. an award, and or it's a fellowship. And uh, all fellows have been nominated by the public. And so it is not the same as an application process. We have a deadline coming up uh, for nominations this summer. Uh, anybody can nominate a National Heritage Fellow. Um, and, uh, you know, the ability of somebody to receive a National Heritage Fellowship uh, is is greatly improved by a, a very strong nomination package, right? Which um, will uh, include letters of support from uh, community members. Uh, it'll include letters of support from, you know, people who are considered uh, scholars or experts in a particular cultural tradition. Um, it may include letters from uh, somebody's artistic peers. Uh, you know, so it kind of covers a, a pretty big range um, uh, of, of support. The fellowship itself um, was started in 1982. I'll give you our definition of it. The fellowships recognize artistic excellence, lifetime achievement, and contributions to our nation's traditional arts heritage. Um, and so making this available to the public you know again earlier we had talked about how is it that we um how do we how do we maintain an awareness of what's happening across the country well sometimes that network of organizations um, will advocate for traditional artists from their community or from their state or their region um, but there's a lot that also comes over the transom uh in terms of nominations that um, that don't come from that network um, and so it's always, I find on an annual basis, it's, it's wonderful to see that we're not just talking to and hearing from the people that we already know. And I think that's a great thing. Right. We uh, typically make up to nine uh, uh, awards each year, um, all together as one cohort. 
Um, we just announced these in June of, uh, of uh, 2019. I think that with the Heritage Fellows each year, you also get this um, incredible snapshot of a broad range of cultural life in, um, in the United States, right? Within nine fellows, right? So we have uh, Dan Ansodegi, who is a, a Basque musician um, from Boise, Idaho. Uh, Grant Boltail, who I mentioned earlier, who's a Crow storyteller from Crow Agency, Montana. Um, Linda Goss, who is an African-American storyteller originally from Alcoa, Tennessee, uh, in the mountains, but uh, today lives in Baltimore, Maryland. She was one of the co-founders of the National Association of Black Storytellers. Um, there's James Jackson, uh, who is a leather worker from uh, Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, Bala Koyate, who uh, he's a, a, a balafon player, uh, African uh, ancestor to the xylophone. Um, it's probably the, that's probably the ah, quickest and easiest, okay. um, or, or of the marimba, you know. So this is one Ooh. of the um, main uh, musical instruments of uh, of a West African jelly or griot, um, right? So it's it's really a, a musical vehicle for um, for storytelling, community history, community mediation. Um, we have I mentioned earlier Josephine Labato, who's from Westminster, Colorado. She's a Spanish culture embroiderer, um, which is a, a a kind of embroidery that helps to preserve community memory and history. Um, uh, Rich Smoker, who is a decoy carver uh, from Marion Station, Maryland, um, which is on the lower eastern shore of Maryland, kind of at the bottom of the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, Las Tesoros de San Antonio, um, who are Tejano singers from San Antonio, Texas. Um, so you, you can you can see a lot going on in that mix, right? Um, and, and then I guess lastly, yeah. we, each year we have the Best Lomax Hawes Fellow, which is for a, um, uh, somebody who has been a significant advocate for traditional arts. And that is um, uh, Bob Fulcher from Clinton, Tennessee, um, who is a, a folklorist and state park ranger. Wow. That's a fantastic uh batch of traditions that I'll have to learn more about. Can you tell me a little bit about the process? Is there a committee that reviews the uh, yeah. nominations? I, so, and um, you know, I've been at the Arts Endowment for four years. Um, in the time that I've been here, uh, our uh, review panel for the National Heritage Fellowships has been between, I think, seven and nine panelists. Um, and I would say the background and expertise of that panel is as broad as the the background and expertise of the of the fellows themselves, if that makes sense. So, um, typically there are one or two um, past recipients of the National Heritage Fellowship who are part of that review panel. So this is also kind of a kind of a peer review um, process, if that makes sense. Um, it is. Yeah, that's uh, a nice element. And, so, uh, you know, there's, there are a lot of nominations. Um, and again, this is something where um, there's a lot of cultural uh, ground to cover um, in that pool of nominees. Um, and so... I bet. How many, app, how many, excuse me, how many nominations would you typically get? Uh, I think get? it's usually between... I, so 
in terms of active nominations, um, uh, and I won't bore you with the bureaucratic details, but um, you know, nominations stay active for a period of time, and they can be renewed and reactivated. So, so um, I, I think it's usually between about 125 and 150 nominations that are being reviewed. Um, I know that in the past it's been higher and lower than that, but um, uh, yeah. Can you share a little bit about your own personal heritage and how you came to devote your career to studying and advancing folk and traditional sure. arts? Um, so I'm going to take off my my uh, National Endowment for the Arts hat here, and I'm going to put on my personal hat. Um, so so speaking as as just an individual out in the world, um, I I grew up um, on sure. the seacoast of New Hampshire. I, I grew up with a feeling that. Um, culture was something that came from away, as we would say in New England, right? So the tourists are people who are from away, right? Um, and that culture was something that came from away, right, that right. if we had a cultural program or a cultural showcase or a cultural concert, um, it was always people from away. And, uh, you know, we had a landscape, whether it was the ocean or the mountains um, or the lakes, that people visited our state um, to to take part in, but nobody was particularly interested in us, um, you know. And so that, uh, that was a, a frustrating feeling. I suspect that's a feeling that um, isn't unique to where I grew up. I suspect it's something that a lot of people um, feel on some level. And, you know, that... You don't see yourself reflected necessarily on what's on television, um, what's in movies, what's on the radio, um, in the music you're listening to. Right. Uh, where am I in this mix, right? Where are the people that I know in this mix? Um, so kind of using that as a, as a starting point, um, I spent uh, my 20s um, playing in a professional rock band. Um, we traveled across the country. We traveled in Europe. Um, and, you know, when people would ask us where we were from, their expectation was that we would say New York City or Austin or, you know, Chapel Hill or Nashville or Chicago, someplace that, you know, or, or Boston, which was only an hour away, right? Um, someplace that, that bands came from. Um, Right. And right. we tried really hard to kind of play off of that by by saying, you know, sticking to our New Hampshire identity. Right. Um, and which probably right. didn't help us um, in terms of marketing. Maybe it did. I don't know. Um, but, you know, that was um, that was an interesting way to kind of get to know the country and to experience life and community and to realize that people were willing um, and open to talking to us as musicians in a way that they wouldn't if we were tourists, uh, in a way that we wouldn't that they wouldn't if we were coming into town as I don't know government workers or something like that. You know that that we learned about the different communities that we visited. Uh, we got to know people in different places. We were exposed to regional foodways and to regional music and to regional identity. Um, I'd never really been anywhere. Uh, and this is how I went any places through music. Um, as you might 
imagine uh, when you're a professional musician, um, most of your time every day is either, it, it isn't spent performing. It's, you know, you're, if you're on tour, you're spending most of your time getting from one place to another. And so you have a lot of time to think. And, um, and so I read a lot of stuff, um, you know, some of which I, I had a, I had a, um, I became a guy that everybody gave celebrity autobiographies to. Um, it sort of became a, a running joke. Um, so I read a lot of um, trashy autobiographies, but I also read a lot of um, a lot of books. And um, one of those books was uh, Joe Klein's biography of Woody Guthrie. Um, and, you know, uh, trying to make a living as an artist is a difficult proposition. And, um, you know, you can spend a lot of time certainly on the road thinking like, why am I doing this? Why does this matter so much to me? What is this all about? Um, and you might try on different hats as you're thinking that out, like what, what would I want to do if I wasn't doing this? Um, most of the time, my, uh, creative alternative career vision was, uh, being in a bluegrass band instead of a rock band, which <laughs> really isn't a different occupation. It's just a different <laughs> genre, right? Um, uh, right? So when I read uh, the Woody Guthrie biography, that was where I was introduced to um, to the work of Alan Lomax and John Lomax and Bess Lomax Hawes, um, uh, who is one of my predecessors here at the National Endowment for the Arts. And it, it was this idea that there was a thing, a job called an ethnomusicologist um, uh, or a folklorist who worked for the government, who worked for the Library of Congress, who worked for the Smithsonian, who worked for the National Endowment for the Arts, um, who was involved in some way in documenting, sharing, celebrating, recognizing regional culture, you know, the things that as I traveled that I found remarkable, um, you know, that this was a job and it was the, it was the only yeah. job, uh, that I thought of that I would actually want to do if I wasn't doing what I was doing. And I had, I had a lot of bi bad jobs at that point. Right. So I tried a lot of things. Um, and, uh, and so this was something that not only did I, did I see was a, a, a way of contributing, um, to society, but it was also something that uh, I felt like drew upon my own personal experiences. Um, and, you know, was, was a way of, um, I guess studying ethnomusicology. So ethnomusicology is the, the study of people making music, right? It's a mixture of music and anthropology. Um, and it was a way of kind of answering that question of why does this matter, right? Who is this for? What is this all about? Um, why do I find so much meaning in this and why do other people too? I wanted to figure out ways of, of understanding, learning, acknowledging um, the things that made communities distinct on a cultural level. Um, and I yeah, I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to understand why this mattered. And I wanted to try to make a case to other people as to why it did matter. Um, so I 
applied for the ethnomusicology program at Brown, and um, I was uh, extraordinarily fortunate um, to get in. Um, they seemed to recognize that uh, experience as a working artist um, was significant. Um, I couldn't believe it. Um, and it's, aside from uh, marrying my wife, probably the most fortunate thing that's ever happened to me. So, um, so yeah, there it is. That's great, Cliff. You know, I, I love that answer, and I love learning more about your own personal story and the beauty of asking people to share their experience um, and to share what they do is that it does give you the opportunity to see yourself in the quote unquote other. And, you know, from there to kind of affirm your own place in the world. And I mean, I, in many ways, do what you do for the same reasons that, that you do it. And by virtue of my podcast and my website, I get to travel around or, or even not travel around and ask people, you know, what is your life like? What is your culture like? Why do you do what you do? And part of my motivation is to try to remind people that anybody can do this and that, you know, whether you travel or not, to be curious about your fellows and to engage um, makes life really fun. Um, and so I loved hearing everything that you just shared. And that segues into um, one of my last questions, which is best cultural destinations tagline is people are culture, connecting is the destination. In that spirit, how do you see your work in the cultural sphere as being about connection? I, I think this happens in 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 three broad ways, right? Um, in the most basic sense, um, the work that we do here at the National Endowment for the Arts uh, connects residents of the country with resources that support folk life and cultural heritage work, right? So that's one that's one way of connection, and, and, and that's maybe a, a grant maker version of connection. But, um, you know, uh, when you are working to serve grassroots communities, um, uh, it, it really relies on this network of um, of programs to um, to connect communities to resources, right? That can be useful to them in the ways that they need it. Um, uh, but we also connect people through programs, right? Um, through through um, you know programs are are the programs that we support. Um, the public programs we support offer a variety of ways to connect with people of different backgrounds, um, you know, for the general public to connect with people of, of different backgrounds um, and to recognize points of commonality. Um, if I think of my own experience as a 20-year-old uh, or 22-year-old going to uh, the Lowell Folk Festival in Massachusetts and and seeing um, uh, uh, Indian classical music for the first time, um, it was an awakening for me. It was, I, I had, I had heard this music before, um, but I had never been in front of it. And the only reason that I was exposed to this in person, um, and, 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 you know, in, in many ways led to relationships with, um, uh, Hindustani and, and Carnatic 
musics and uh, and dancers uh, down the road is because I ran into it at a festival. Um, uh, so so there's that, um, but there's also like this another point of connection is through really grassroots reflective work um, that strives to connect or reconnect individuals um, with their cultural heritage um, or, or awakens in them the realization that, um, that they or their, their neighbors are endowed with culture, right? I think we're all endowed with culture mm. and, um, and reflecting back on my teenage self, you know, this is something that I was not aware of. And it was something that caused um, a, a sense of, um, I don't know, being a cultural second-class citizen or resentment or something, um, uh, frustration um, in, in me, right? Um, and and how do we? It's taken a long mm-hmm. time to be awakened to the fact that um, that you know uh, my community, that my neighborhood, that my family, that you know all all kinds of points of entry are, are vehicles for for tradition and and culture. Um, so, so we work to do that as well. Now for my truly last question. Um, based on your experience, could you make one suggestion for listeners on a way of achieving connection? Yeah, I, I think after, after um, a long conversation where I've given so many different ways of <laughs> making connection, now, now trying to winnow it down to one. Um, that's a, that's a, t- a tough question. I what I would what I would urge people to try to do is to um, to to reflect on who they want to connect with and why right um, that Ooh. we all want to learn about one another on some level um, and I think it can be most comfortable uh, to learn from our most distant neighbors, right? So if you think of, of being a, a, a cultural tourist someplace, um, uh, I'll, I'll put this in terms of an anthropologist, right? Is that um, if I go and I do field work someplace on a different continent and I come back to the United States and I tell everybody what I think about it and here's what I think is happening in this community, um, it's hard for that community to have any uh agency to have pushback against whatever it is I'm saying, right? (laughs) And so it can be easy to come back home and say, hey, here's what I saw and here's what I think about it. Um, I mean, I I don't mean to to do ethnographers a disservice. I'm just saying that, you know, distance can make certain things that we do um, a little bit more comfortable. Um, uh, Tradition makes real demands of people it's 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 inconvenient at times uh you know i've seen apprenticeship grants where um the master artist has gotten sick part way through and the apprentice shifts from learning a, a, a an artistic tradition to being a caretaker for somebody um so you are learning about more than just the art form you are learning about life and you're learning about the art form in context of life right um so if you have that drive to travel to visit culture, I would say um, reflect on how you can visit culture in your own 
local area, right? What are you not seeing that is right in front of you? Who are you not seeing and acknowledging that's right in front of you? Um, I think that's a challenge for all of us. Um, you know, I, I we can be so deep within um, local culture and local tradition that we that that we don't know it, that we don't appreciate it, and we don't acknowledge it. And so, um, <laughs> that's that's a, that's a long answer and maybe not terribly specific, but um, but that, I think that's an action. Well, it's very insightful, Cliff. It's very insightful because you know at the end of the day, like we are all culture, each and every one of us, and to think of it as needing to be something exotic, um, you know create some separateness. So that's right. a fantastic I would also answer. tell people to consider who they should nominate for a National Heritage Fellowship. Yes, we want to make yes. sure that people act on that. So thank you for that. Cliff, I have okay. thoroughly enjoyed this. I, have I so too. appreciate um, you sharing your your experience. Thank you. And um, uh, it's been it's, wonderful. 